It was 1993. I was in grad school at the time, and I was working as well. And an interesting opportunity presented itself to me. Estevan Alliance Church was between pastors, and uh, they asked me to come and speak on a, at a weekend service. And of course, I always appreciate the opportunity to speak and was excited to do that. And uh, at the same time, I kind of wondered in the back of my mind if they might be sort of subtly checking me out to see if I might potentially be their next lead pastor. And so I took the 12 to 15 hours, whatever it was, 20 hours to prepare a message to go down there. Uh, our kids were little at the time, little babies. And so we got them up really early in the morning and we got somebody to look after them. I took the day off work and without pay, which at a time when money was tight and we got up really early and we drove down there to go and speak in the church. And as we arrived, we found out that there'd been a very innocent mix up. A second person in the church had taken it upon themselves to arrange someone else to drive to Estevan and speak that same day. And I ended up getting bumped. And so Debbie and I are sitting down right over here, if you think of the sanctuary, right in the front row. And it was a much more curved sanctuary. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, um, wonder why this happened. Didn't go according to plan. A little bit upsetting. Why did you do this, God? And it wasn't a huge deal, but I, I remember sitting there thinking, why did you do this, God? And then God did something for me right at that moment as I was sitting down here looking across the crowd, looking at all of the different faces that I'll never forget, something I'll never forget. And I'll tell you about that at the end of the talk. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we bow in your presence and we welcome you for your presence, for you to be here by your spirit. We pray, Father, and we offer our lives to you to be molded and shaped in any way you see fit. And that's, you know, some people think that's a scary thing to pray. And it's really not with you because you are the faithful God, the God that can be trusted, the God who is good, like we just sang about, even when we don't always understand it. And yet we pray that you will do that, that you'll shape us and direct us and lead us and that we would respond appropriately. And so we pray these things as we look into your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Many of you, probably a majority of us here or online listening this morning, probably at some point in your life or maybe many points in your life have had something really severe happen to you, some incredible heartache, some abuse, some kind of trial, some kind of very difficult event or series of events. And we're in the middle of this series of messages, the peace of God. And we've been looking consistently through the first three. And this is the fourth of five looking to say, Jesus, would you step into our life and go on the journey of healing with us as we have been processing some mental health issues. And today we're going to talk about trauma and our response to things that are deeply disturbing 
And so it could be a physical trauma of some kind. It's usually emotional in some way, mental, some kind of spiritual abuse that's been perpetrated on us. And right away, we address this myth that surfaced in the year 1862. You probably heard this when you were a kid. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And of course, that's not true, right? Because sometimes the wounds that we can't see hurt as much or more than the visible ones. And sometimes the things that have been done to us or said to us, they take way longer to heal than just a cut or something like that. And sometimes Christians with very good intentions, but in sort of a very almost cavalier, even though their intentions are probably good, sort of in a light way, in the midst of incredible pain that we're going through, they will throw Romans 8.28 at us and they will say, well, you know, all things, in all things that God works together, those things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And of course, that's a very important truth, and it is true. But at that particular moment in time, it might not feel really helpful. And probably if you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, you know that verse. And so you're in the midst of this incredible shock, and maybe you're in denial, maybe you're bargaining, maybe you're angry, maybe you're even a little depressed, or whatever the case is. And, and, and at that moment, really what you just need is someone to hug you and cry with you and love you and pray with you. And it may be that what happened or is happening to you Maybe it is partially your fault. We've talked about this a little bit. In other words, there's been a sinful pattern in your life that you are refusing to repent of. Jesus is loving you and disciplining you and trying to get your attention, and you keep giving him the stiff arm. And so consequences are attaching in some kind of traumatic matter. But oftentimes... Um, this is not the case. Oftentimes in these things, we're totally innocent. It's not your fault. But even when that's the case, we get this sense of false guilt or false shame for something we didn't do, but someone else did to us or circumstances visited on us. And so today we want to talk about healing from trauma. We want to look to God. We want to look to his word for that. And as I've been saying each week, even though I have some training, I'm not a mental health expert. I am a pastor. And so I'll primarily approach this subject from this angle. But from the reading that I've done, um, many experts would say there's they'll sort of categorize trauma. They'll say there's, there's acute trauma which is our response to a one-time horrible traumatic event. And so there's a car accident, or just a few weeks ago, uh, two of our churches in Calgary, Rock Point and Harvest Hills, six of their young men were in a plane, and they all died in a plane accident from those two churches of our sister churches of ours. Or the city of Yellowknife being evacuated. I have a friend, he and his wife and family made the 19 hour drive because of the fire 
down from Yellowknife to live and be with his sister in Calgary. Those kinds of one-off events. Then there's a chronic out to get us. But at the same time, even though he's powerful, our God's more powerful. And we have authority in Jesus' name. And we, can, if we're followers of Christ, we have authority in Jesus' name to do battle against that. I want us to take a few minutes to look at a guy from Scripture who actually wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who was under Jesus, the chief architect of the New Testament church, who wrote at one point to live as Christ, to die as gain. This individual experienced all the kinds of trauma I referenced over long periods of time. What happened in his life? So we're going to take some time. And if you have your Bible, turn with me or your device to the book of Acts chapter nine, a well-known passage, Acts chapter nine. We want to begin there in verse one. And I'd like to read the first nine verses. You could read the rest of the chapter, but I'm going to read the first nine verses. And as I do that, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Let's read. Meanwhile, Saul, he later becomes Paul, gets a name change. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. He goes, I want to go north from Jerusalem and I want to start pounding on the Christians up in Damascus so that they so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul, because he was a big shot, he would have had a big entourage. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And so this guy's conversion and the surrounding events are traumatic events. And in this particular case, it was a result of his own sinful choices and decisions. And that, as I said earlier, that can be the case sometimes. And so he goes about imprisoning and torturing and murdering Christians. He goes on this journey up north. He ends up going blind. He ends up being healed. He ends up giving his life. His life is completely surrendered. And he does a complete 180 in life and becomes a follower of the way. Try to imagine with me the feelings that he's going through in those three days. I spent my whole life, I'm in the elite of society. I'm in the top 1% of the top 1%. He's got a more than genius level IQ. He spent his whole life going in one direction. He realizes I was fervent. I was a zealot in this and I was totally wrong. And I was murdering and torturing and imprisoning the people that I'm now a part of. How could I have done that? 
I'm a smart, smart guy. How could I have been so very wrong? And he's on the road north, and a light knocks him to the ground. And it's just a guess, and that's all it is. But based on my extensive grade five knowledge of science, it might be lightning that knocked him down. Don't know for sure. And the voice doesn't say to him, hello, Saul, I've got good news and a good plan for your life. You're going to be the chief architect of the New Testament church under Jesus, and you're going to write most of the New Testament. No, it doesn't say that. The voice says to him, Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? He gets up, he goes blind for three days. God doesn't say to him, oh, by the way, at the end of three days, I'm going to dramatically and instantly and supernaturally heal you. I'm going to send a guy, if you read the rest of the story, I'm going to send a guy who you were on the way to murder, by the way, and he's going to come and pray for you and you'll be healed. And so you're sitting there for three days. You don't eat. You don't drink. You're feeling incredible guilt for the things you've done. You're blind. You're thinking to yourself, I'm going to have to go and sit by the pool of Salome for the rest of my life and beg for scraps and hope to fall in the water and get healed. I've gone from being a rock star in this society, the most He's on the fast track to become the high priest, the top position in the entire nation to being an absolute nobody, an outcast from the Pharisees, and from many of the Christians at that point who didn't trust him. This is all a ruse to kill more of us. He goes from all of this to becoming the writer, as I said, of most of two-thirds of the New Testament, preaches everywhere, plants church everywhere, all those kinds of things. And the good news after that is God rewards him with a six-figure salary, great benefits, and an incredibly easy life in a lazy boy. (laughs) See, if you know anything about his story, you know that he actually suffered prolific abuse for the rest of his life from many different quarters, many different sides, often having to run for his life, people trying to kill him all the time, people trying to discredit him, and in the language of our culture, canceling him. He goes from being absolutely blind to God dramatically and supernaturally healing him. Now, somebody says, well, Scott, can, can God still do that today? He absolutely can Absolutely. I've never seen that, but I've seen him heal other things just dramatically on the spot. It's always good to ask, but usually, usually healing comes over time. And he often uses some of the methodologies that I referenced earlier. But there's three things we're going to observe in Paul later, Saul later Paul's life. And the first one is he's going through all this. The first thing is he would say to us, don't try to suppress the wound. You know, a lot of people in the culture, they they think this, well, all I got to do is think positive thoughts, the warm fuzzies. I'll try not to think about this horrible thing or horrible things that have happened to me. And hopefully it'll just go away, which of course is a huge lie. We only, only begin the journey of healing when we take it to God and acknowledge what happened. 
I was abused. I was raped. Not my fault. Everybody tells me it's not my fault, but I feel this false guilt and false shame. Even though it wasn't my fault, but it's hard not to think somehow it was. And this is a lie from the evil one. Or I am hurting, or I was abandoned, or I was mistreated, or whatever the case is. And, and Paul would say to us, even though you may not understand it, and I got a feeling he didn't understand some of the stuff we're going to read about here in just a minute. He's saying, don't, don't push away from the trusted God. You may not understand, but don't push away from the trusted people. He begins to bring across your path. Not everybody is like that person that did those horrible things to you. And so we don't try to heal in isolation, Paul would say. We don't try to use non-prescription drugs or alcohol to numb ourselves in order to cope. All it does is just make things worse. Vicious circle. Now, it's interesting because, as I said, and as I've alluded to, even though he's following Jesus and he surrenders absolutely everything in his life, all his, you know, all the previous career and career track, gonzo, brand new life. Okay. Even though he does all that and he's done nothing wrong. Listen to what this dude goes through. So turn to the right in your Bible past um, Romans and then first and second Corinthians, second Corinthians chapter 11. So this is the second letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. A church, especially in the first letter, that were struggling mightily. They were messed up on so many levels. But beginning in verse 23 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, right in the middle there, um, he says this, I'm more. I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again, Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers." I've labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've, been, I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. When you get 39 lashes back then, for legal matters, they would say, that they could lash you 39 times, one less than 40. And if it went to court... And you died, they would just say, well, he died from a beating. If you hit somebody 40 times, it was considered murder. But 39 was okay. And they did it to him five separate times. They would just beat you and wait to see if you survived. And when it says he was stoned, he's not speaking recreationally there. He is saying that people picked up rocks, threw them at him over and over again, hoping to kill him. 
his response to all of this. He doesn't pretend like it didn't happen in any way. Like I said, he just read how he acknowledges it. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, Indeed, we have felt and we have received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not only rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, if you've ever hurt so bad, you feel like you didn't want to go on, or realistically you felt like you were going to die, Paul has been there as well. He's been there. So he says, we acknowledge. The second thing he says is we prayerfully step towards God. We take it to God. We cry out to God. We might even complain to God about what's going on. This happens many times in scripture. Just read the Psalms. Deb and I were reading Psalm 88 together yesterday, a guy named Heman. And, and yeah, he, he, he talks at length about his complaint to God. He doesn't hold back. He's thoroughly honest. And this is what Paul does. He takes it to God. And so if you just turn over one page, well-known passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says in verses 7 and 8, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. And so God is using him in supernatural ways, dramatic ways. The spirit is inspiring him to write the New Testament. Churches are being planted despite the fact that all of this going on, he's getting visions from God, dreams, all of these things. He says, okay, I could possibly start getting a swelled head because of some of this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So he has some kind of a thorn and trust me, there's been a number of people that have written books trying to figure out what this thorn is. And there's all kinds of, um, conjecture about what that is. Bottom line is we don't know for sure, but it's some kind of a thorn. That's a difficult thing to bear. And likely to one degree or another, all of us have had, or will have some kind of a thorn. And I know what some of you are thinking, Scott, I'm sitting here beside my thorn. Whatever you do, don't elbow your thorn right now. Okay. You can do that later. Three times he prays, it says, and and the people that I've read about this said, it's not just this little, you know, three short little prayers, you know, like, God, there's, I got this thorn in my side, I can't see or something like that. Some people suggest whatever it was, it wasn't just a short little prayer. The idea of the passage here in the Greek here is there was three seasons of prayer where he would pray, where he would fast, where he would focus in and invite God over and over again, please, would you take this away? And he kept doing this until he got an answer from God. You'll notice he doesn't blame God, but he begs God to take it away. And the idea here is that when we have this kind of hurt, this kind of trauma, whatever it is, We can take our hurt to God over and over again, over and over until he says yes, or until he says no. And so he just says, God, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to beg with you for help, beg to you for help. 
And God says no the first time, God says no the second time, God says no the third time, and he realizes long term God's answer in this situation is no. And when he comes to that place of understanding this is clearly God's answer after long seasons of it, he says this in verses 9 and 10, but God said to me, my grace, so this is, a, this is not a salvation type of grace, this is a sustaining type of grace. Second of three types of grace we see in the scripture. The third being kind of a general grace that God has given to the earth to stop us from destroying ourselves. And I believe if, if he hadn't done that, we would have blown ourselves up and killed us all a long time ago. So there's this very specific sustaining grace that he experienced. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So being able to pray something and say something like that, not because it's the thing that Christians say, but sincerely say it and sincerely live it out. Those kinds of things only come, only come from the healing power of Jesus in the life, from the very presence of God that we've been talking about in this series. When we come, when our sins are forgiven, we have peace with God. But God also says in first Thessalonians five, I can impart to you the very peace of God. So this is what he's talking about here. The peace of God descending in your life. Psalm 34, the God who heals the brokenhearted. You only can do that. You can only only have that as these conditions continue in your life, when this kind of peace of God descends in your life. So we acknowledge, we know God can heal. We ask him to heal us. We ask him repeatedly until he says yes or no. And then there's a third thing. And I understand, I'm going to try to say this one real gently, because I understand that some of you or maybe really not ready to hear this, okay? You're just not there yet. So I'm going to just try to say it real gently. The third one is um, we pursue purpose in our trauma. We pursue purpose. After all that Paul has been through year after year after year of traumatizing events, he says this, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we might comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If you are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If you are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. 
Because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. So why does he do this? Paul is saying, well, he does it to begin developing a purpose in us. A purpose in our pain. That he can use us one day to comfort others so that we don't understand exactly. You never understand. You never understand exactly what someone else has gone through. But you have some sense, perhaps. Okay. And God can use you to help comfort them. I spent an hour with someone on Friday and they were telling me about their journey and uh, of trauma that's still ongoing and the process of healing going on in their lives that's still ongoing. And to use their words, they, it's not an exact quote, but they said, they can just look back over the last 13 months and they can see the fingerprint of God through it and what's going on. That God is healing them and using them to encourage and heal others on the journey of healing. And so we invite God into our trauma. We ask for healing and we understand that he is going to use us to help others in our healing. So I'm in Estevan and I get bumped from preaching. I'm sitting there down right where Brian is, except it's more curved. And I'm looking at the congregation and I've prepared for this day. I've gone to significant lengths to get there. I'm assuming that I am going to be the one that's delivering the message. But instead, God delivered the message to me. And this message almost, it almost made me fall out of the pew as my eyes scanned across the room. It was not an audible voice from God, but as close to that as it comes. And it was, it was a voice just like this, Scott, every one of these people that you're looking at has a story. Never really thought of it that way before. Every one of them has a story. And there's some really good elements to their stories, but there's also stories of incredible pain, stories of hurt. I never want you to forgive this. You're in your late 20s. Never forget this. And as I write your story, Scott, I want to use you to go on the journey with them. And I had no idea what that would mean at the time. And I had no idea what was to come in my life. But I've never forgotten it. God brings healing to some of the worst pains I and you have ever experienced. Or at least he wants to. He wants to use me and he wants to use you to help others with the same comfort that he has given you. Purpose in our pain. Purpose.